worshiping you. Father, we pray that we are able to live up to the calling that you have in our lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would be our God and that we would be able to be your people above all else. Father, we live in a world that is broken, that is full of disharmony, dispeace, problems and issues, Father. But we know that when we trust you, that you will be faithful in all those circumstances, Father. Lord, we're just going to take a moment right now. Father, we come from different backgrounds, different walks of life. But we all have the same struggles, the same issues, the same problems, the same brokenness in our life. We all fall short of the glory that you have for us. We all are not able to do what we want to do. Instead, we sin, we err, we make mistakes, we give in to our brokenness. Father, we're just going to take a moment, each of us individually, to confess to you the mistakes that we've made, to come with a clean slate this morning. Father, let's just do that, each of us individually right now. And God, forgive us of those things so that we may be able to come and worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and you are just and you are willing to forgive. You are faithful in our lives. Lord, that no matter when we are faithless, we thank you because you are always faithful. That your faith restores, your hope restores in our lives. Father, we just ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would be in our lives, pushing us forward and encouraging us in relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, well, we want to just go ahead and jump into our series. Hope Restored is what we have been working on um, over the last couple of weeks. Actually, just last week and this week. Usually at Easter, we do a big, long series. But instead, I decided this year to do a, um, a mini-series and uh, just for, to do something different. And so we're going to be talking about this uh, mini-series of Hope Restored in Our Lives um, this issue of how we experience God's work in our lives on a regular basis. One of the things that we will talk about today is uh, that as we try to have real hope and real faith in our lives, that it is important that we do not give in to sort of the lie of the American society, which the American dream is sort of to get rich and get rich quickly, to have apple pie and to have goodness and to have uh, a good job and a middle-class family and a Volvo in the parking lot or whatever, and we want all that stuff right now. I realized while I was preaching in first service that most people confuse how God works in our lives. When God brings hope into our lives, when God brings faith into our lives, it is a slow process. All of us, most of us, would like to be able to go to the gym, walk into the gym, five minutes later, coming out looking buff. You know, totally different than the way CJ looks, totally buff, right? Not flabby, CJ, buff like everyone else, right? That's what we'd want. Just walk in, five minutes later, come out and be totally buff. But that's not the way it is. In fact, it is hard work that gets us to that place. We're going to read this morning a story of hard work. Someone who really devoted their faith to God, and it took a long time for this person to work out the kinks that were in their lives 
for God to really work in their lives in a powerful and meaningful way. So we're going to be continuing the life of Abraham here this morning, talking about him and what he does, what he did, and how God worked in his life. Well, here's our two-week mini-series, How God Restores People, and uh, we're going to be looking again at the life of Abraham here this morning. I have a new clicker instead of, because uh, it broke last week, and this one's kind of not really doing the job. Here's our strategy. Our strategy is this, is last week we talked about how faith restores. Um, we looked at Abraham and we looked at Romans 4 about how faith comes into our lives and restores us into relationship with God and sets us right um, with him. Today, we're, we're going to be looking at how uh, hope restores. And Vanna, you could go like three slides ahead, I think, because this thing is just not going to cooperate here with me um, this morning. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look and see what the Bible says. Keep on going, keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. There we go. Let's see what the Bible has to say um, here this morning. We're going to look, first of all, just as Romans 4, just the first verse there. We talked about this last week before we hit Genesis, what we'll be picking up this week. All right, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God has said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. So Abraham, in old age, had faith, had hope. Let's talk about how that came to him, how it worked in his life. All right, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is Genesis chapter 22, um, verses 1 through 18. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, that would be awesome. I'm going to turn there myself. Um, yes, it will be up on the Jumbotron if you don't have your Bible with you. Um, but if you do, we'll be looking at it several times. So Genesis chapter 22. Uh, let's go ahead and open up there just real quickly here this morning. Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to look at a really powerful story um, about from the life of Abraham and uh, from uh, the life of Isaac as well. All right, here's what the Bible says. Crazy story, really powerful story. Here's what it says. Sometime later, by the way, this was like 5,000 years ago, depending on how you date it. Okay, so a long time ago, long before Jesus. Sometimes later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. There we go. Okay. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped up wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. 
Abraham named the place Yahweh Yira, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb in saying, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. All right, two ideas that we're going to talk about very briefly this morning about the situation with Abraham and how God restores hope and faith into our lives if we allow him to do that. That's going to be the trick issue. That's going to be the struggle that we have allowing God to do that. First thing is that God calls us to faith. The first idea, and you can follow along in your handout and your bulletin if you want to, but God calls us to faith in him. Listen, as we go through our lives, it's very easy to give into the secular modern ideal that we are humans alone in the world, that we are sort of an island unto ourselves, that it is only us and our own sense of purpose and destiny that makes our lives meaningful. That is sort of the Western modern, again, secular ideal, that it is man against the universe. The problem is, is that that idea, that ideal, is not necessarily a good or a very biblical picture of the world. Why is that? Because the secular modern man, you, the secular modern woman, you out there, since the day you were born, God has been calling you to a life of faith. That there is a God out there who exists, and he has been calling and, and cajoling and encouraging and trying to get you to have relationship with him. He has been out there trying to convince us. And as we look at the life of Abraham, Abraham first heard God and, like many of us, rejected God. He said, well, you know, I'm not really into that right now. I'm out there. I've got to build my kingdom. I've got to build my fortune. I've got to do my life the way I want to. But fortunately for Abraham, as we're going to talk about this morning, that as he progressed in life, he began to listen more and more to God's calling in his life. And by listening to God, he was able to have more and more of the life that he desired, more and more of the life that God desired for him. And of course, as we know as Christians, that he was able to have eternal life as well when he passes from the world. So God calls us to faith. If you're here this morning, you're proof positive that God is calling you to faith. Maybe you came because a friend invited you. Maybe you came because I paid you. Maybe, oh, just a joke. Maybe you came because you felt guilty. Maybe you came for any number of reasons. But God is trying to call you and to call you to a life of faith. Why? Because it is a life of relationship with him rather than a life alone in our world all by ourselves. Loneliness, by the way, being alone is not necessarily a good thing. How many of you like to be alone? All, like all the time. Now, you guys know, some of you know I'm a massive introvert. So me and a computer is generally okay. But I would not want to be alone like in a room that's all white with nothing in it, just me. Right? That would be like, cuckoo, psycho ward time, right? That's what that would be. And many of you too, we don't want to be alone. So God is calling us into relationship with him, but many people will not respond. And this is why we need to respond and how we respond. All right. So uh, Abraham listened when God spoke to him. Basically, as we talk through this, this passage here, we need to realize that this story of Isaac, this is the, these events are the culmination of Abraham's struggle with faith, okay? So if you've never read the Bible before, you don't know anything about Abraham, there's lots and lots of stories about Abraham in the Bible that give you the progression that's going on in his life from a really, was Abraham a nice guy or not a nice guy? Not a nice guy, right? I'll keep it PG. I can't say all the things he did. If it was R-rated service, I could tell you much more about the things that he did. But he was not a good guy, right? It took God a lot of work in his life to make him into the person that he would be. No amount of self-help, no amount of self-introspection, self no amount of navel-gazing that you can do will make you into the person that you desire to be. 
only relationship with God, only the power of God working in your life is going to be able to do that. So when, when God spoke at this point in his life, this being the culmination, Abraham simply responded and did what God asked him to do. Now, ultimately, in our lives, we want to get to that point, don't we? I mean, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know, Pastor, because I'm still not convinced of all this. But if you've been a Christian for a while, a Christian by what I mean by a believer in Jesus, not someone who checks, checks Christian on the senses, that's not a Christian. A Christian is someone who is fully committed to God in every single day of their life, every single aspect of their lives. If we're not committed to God in that way, then we can't call ourselves a Christian. We certainly can't call ourselves a believer. We may check it on the census form, but that's about it, and it doesn't work with God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But these events, these things, and so what happens is, is Abraham is going through life here, and, and God speaks to him. Real faith, which is what Abraham had by this point in his life, is both listening and responding. You know, a lot of times my wife talks to me. And when my wife talks to me, make sure you turn that back on afterwards because I forgot last service. Uh, I know it's helping. Um, my wife will talk to me and um, she'll say, can you do this? 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 Right? And I hear her. Well, let's be honest. I'm not really listening a whole lot, am I? There's a soundtrack playing in my mind when I hear my wife do that. And guys, if you're here, it's the same thing with you. When your wife says, right, that's the way it is. And we're not very good at listening. We hear our boss. I wish I could do the Charlie Brown. All the time, right? We hear people always talking to us, but a lot of times, especially us guys, we don't really listen very well. But here's the problem. When we talk about real faith here and we look at Abraham's life, look what happened to Abraham. God told him, said, said, Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, I am here. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, the whom you love so much. Go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What? On one of the mountains, which I will show you. And Abraham did what? The next morning, he got up and he did it. He got up and he did it. You know? Many of us in our lives, we hear God. Meaning that we hear a pastor like me Blah, 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 talk, 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 nag, 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 nag you all the time, right? To follow God, do what God calls you to do. We hear God because we encounter his word and his challenge from us all the times in life, whether we come across a Bible verse on the internet, someone sends us some crazy forward, whatever it is, God calls us constantly. He speaks into our heart, into the very small place in our heart, and he says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. But the challenge is, is that for real faith to come into our lives, we must not simply hear God. We must not simply just listen to God. Okay, God, I hear you and I'm listening. I'm not, there's no soundtrack. I'm just listening right now. But we actually have to respond to God as well. That's what Abraham did. Abraham, God could have said, oh, do this, do that. And Abraham could say, okay, I hear you. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Okay, okay. Right? He could have done that. He could have also said, Okay, God, I hear you. You want me to go and sacrifice Isaac? I, I, you know, I get that. Um, let me get out my day planner, and I'm going to schedule you in at some point, and uh, I'll make it happen. What did Moses do when God came to him? Moses cried like a little girl, didn't he? I don't want to go to Egypt. I can't talk very well. Pharaoh's not going to like me. And you know what? Many of us do the same thing in our lives. God calls us. 
and we cry and we moan and we complain because we think that faith is just sort of doing the minimum, going to the gym one time a year and we come out looking awesome. You know, we don't have to study. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to work hard. But that's the lie, my friends. Because Abraham had to do a very hard thing by getting up in the morning with a willingness to sacrifice his son. Now remember this, this is the son that God had promised him, right? We talked about Romans 4 here, and God had promised Abraham a son for years. And said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham's like, I'm old. My wife's old. It's not really possible. And then God did a miracle, and Abraham was able to have a child, Isaac. And now God's saying, I want you to kill this child. And yet, Abraham was like, didn't whine, didn't complain, but was willing to do it. You know, that comes through a lifetime of living for God and living for faith. Not that it's blind, but it's that it's obedient. That we trust God with our lives, with our children, with our families. But many of us are afraid to do that. Many of us are unwilling to trust God at that level. But let me argue with you that if you do not trust God at that level then the amount of trust you have is very minimal in God's eyes. Again, not by my eyes, but by God's eyes. Why? Because when we commit our lives to Jesus, we are saying, I do, before the altar. And it means that we cannot just mess around. We cannot do what we want to do. But that it is a lifetime of commitment of following God, of believing in His Son, Jesus. You know, again, I know that we live in a world of easy believism. I know you can find another church in San Jose where they'll tell you, don't worry about following Jesus. Just give a little money, just have a lot of fun, and life's going to be great for you. I know, they're there. They're on TV too. But it's not the Bible, and it's not what God says. You know, a lot of times your mama probably told you that anything worth doing is worth doing right. Your mama also probably told you anything worth something is, requires hard work, right? Your mamas tell you that? Okay, well, it's true. Mamas are right, at least in that regard. Okay, they're right all the time, all right? How about that? Real faith is both listening and responding to God. That, that faith comes is, is, you know, we were talking about this in one life groups. Faith is not intellectual assent. What do I mean by that? Well, if I say, do you have faith that E equals MC squared? All of us would be like, um, sure, right? Because we've been taught in school that, that's true. Einstein solved it, and that's what it is. So intellectually, we believe in it, but there's no heart connection, and there's no willingness to live by that rule of science. But when we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to follow God, it is not simply an intellectual decision that we make. It must be a heart decision. It must be a will decision. The Bible talks about three types of decisions, a heart a mind and a will, volition, will being the most important. We must choose to follow God. We must actively do it. It is not something that we can just put on a shelf and look at from time to time. It's not something that can happen once a year, once a month. It has to be something that is ingrained in our lives to the point where when God calls us to do something, we get up and we respond and we do it. Now, obviously that's a perfect scenario. Many of us are not at that point in our lives, but that's the point where you need to get if you want to be able to have real faith in God. By the way, no one's perfect because I can't. I'm not 100%. Abraham was 100%. You're not going to be 100%. I'm happy if I get to like 60%, right? But when you hang out at 2%, not going to work. Good for milk, not good for people, okay? 
Bad joke, I know, but it's true. Real faith is both listening and responding to God. Sometimes the end of hope is the beginning of faith. You know, here's the crazy thing about uh, Abraham's story here, which is this, is that Abraham was expectant on God to do something. And if we remember, we talked last week about faith, right, and Abraham. And when God came to Abraham and said, listen, you're going to be a father of a great nation, and Abraham was like, dude, I'm really old. I'm an old prune and I'm dried up. I'm 100 years old. Unless I'm going to kick my old wife to the curb and get a younger model, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to have kids. And God was willing and said, listen, you are going to have children. And Abraham believed God, and the Bible says God credited him with righteousness. Now, we're going to break down that because that's the most important idea in the Bible, one of the most important of all. And, and so Abraham believed, and God extended to him the credit of his belief. Now, let's talk about hope, because hope, we talk about this every Easter, but hope is a powerful thing. But the way the Bible describes hope is not the way we as people describe hope. Let me give you an example. When I'm late to turn in my red box, I say, I hope I can get there by 9 o'clock. When I am trying to get a raise, I hope my boss will give me a raise. Every year we say, I hope the 49ers will go to the Super Bowl. I hope the Raiders will even win a game this year, right? That's what we say. We hope, but hope means what in that context? Wishing upon a star. Like, oh, please, Raiders, just win one game would be awesome, right? We hope, but we know it's not probably going to happen. Not likely, anyway. And so when we use hope in our world today, it means we're wishing upon something in the hope that it will happen. But the Bible uses hope differently. Because if you ever notice in the Bible, the Bible says that we should place our hope in the Lord. Well, it's not talking about wishing upon a star. Hope there in the biblical sense means to be confident in what God is going to do, even though he has not done it yet. So uh, my hope is in the Lord, knowing that God is going to be faithful and true, and that he is going to do what is right by my life. I put my hope that God is, has a place prepared for me when I pass from this world. Why? Is it a pie in the sky? You know, maybe it can happen, maybe not. A crapshoot from beyond? No. It is, in fact, me knowing confidently that God has a place for me. I am awaiting it expectantly. But here's the thing. Let's use hope as we do in regular English. Sometimes the end of hope actually begins faith. It is the beginning of faith, right? Because Abraham, here he was, finally was able to have a child. You know, he, he trusted God. He didn't go out and look for Viagra. He didn't go out and look for in vitro fertilization. He didn't go out and look for any of that stuff. He trusted God when God said, you're going to have a kid. He had a kid, and then God says, eh, you need to sacrifice your son. So Abraham said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what I'm going to do. And as hope, human hope, dwindled, real faith was able to come into his life. Why? Because he began to trust God completely more than anything else. He began to trust God more than his own self, sense of self-worth. He began to trust God more than his own sense of the skill of his hands. He began to trust God more than his own sense of his brilliant intellect. He began to trust God more than his own emotional needs. He began to trust God in every possible way that he could. He became a person who was trying to trust God completely in his life. And as the Bible says, that God provided a sacrifice for him. Well, let's talk about this. Idea number two this morning is that God will provide the offering for us. That God will provide the offering for us. Now, here's a really crazy thing to happen. Abraham comes, 
Abraham comes to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when they, you know, here's, here's sad. Bible has jokes in it, but it also has sad stuff in it too. And um, one of them is, is when, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder, right? Made the poor little child carry the wood to his place of execution. While he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? I can imagine, you know, my children saying that to me, right? And that childlike voice, well, where is it, you know? I don't see it, Father. Why are we going to do this? And then one of the most powerful verses of the Bible, as I remember, reminded last week in Life Group, is this. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. God will provide the offering in our lives. Let's break this down, because God has an offering prepared for you and for I if we allow him to do that. Abraham trusted God to pick the best sacrifice. You know, Abraham didn't know what God was going to do. He had no idea, you know, he had no idea what was going on. But Abraham trusted that God had a plan that was better than a plan that he could imagine. He trusted that God would have a sacrifice. He didn't know if it would have to be a son, but that's what God said at that point, and so he did it. And so he did it. So God trusted him. God trusted him. Abraham trusted God to bring the best sacrifice there. Now, here's the crazy thing. If we want to have a life like Abraham, if we want to be a person of faith who is committed to God, then it is necessary for God to pick the right sacrifice for us. You know, sometimes I meet people who are very jaded by the modern world, and they'll say, you know, this is a good example from the Bible of how God is not a good God. How God, I mean, how cruel could you be to call a person to sacrifice his child, how cruel, how barbaric, you know, is that? But of course, if you're a believer here, you know that the reason why the story is in the Bible, why did God ask Abraham to do this? Does anybody know? We all we should know, right? It's because he wanted to point 2,000 years before Jesus came into the world that we could know that there would be a sacrifice prepared for us if we were willing to allow God to sacrifice us. Is it barbaric? that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar? How much more barbaric is it that we ourselves sacrifice and executed God's only son who is totally innocent of anything? That's pretty barbaric. And we did it. I did it. You did it. We all did it. Why did we do it? Because it was necessary for God to send His Son to remove the penalty of sin and death from our lives. And so by our own mistakes, by our own willingness to rebel against God, that we've all done, me, you, everybody, that it was the result of that that led to Christ's execution and led to His death. Some may say, well, I, didn't actually, I wasn't actually there that day where I pulled the trigger. I wasn't actually there that day where I flipped the switch. Uh, I wasn't there that day when I... doesn't matter. And I'll tell you why it doesn't matter. Because if we want to have an abundant life here on earth, if we want to have eternal life in heaven, it is necessary for us to find the right sacrifice. Why do we need an offering? Why do we need a sacrifice? Well, let me put it to you this way. God is the creator of the universe. He is the master of the universe. When God decides that this is the way something's going to be, it kind of is the way it's going to be. God says, listen, that the only way that a person can be right, the only way a person can be at peace with me 
is to be made right. And as we learned from Abraham, as we talked about last week, that it is God who credits a person with being made right. Yes, that's right. 5,000 years before anybody ever invented a credit card, God invented a credit card for you and I, which basically is this, which basically says that when we go to God and we, in faith, confess ourselves to God, that we are not made right because there's nothing that we can do. We have no power. We have no ability to make ourselves right. We have no power or ability to forgive the things that have, we've done. We, you know, we can ask for forgiveness, but it doesn't take it back. If I go and I hit somebody in the face, I can ask for forgiveness if they're willing to forgive me, but it doesn't take back the hurt and the blood that, that came out. And so, and so, God said, when Abraham believed, he credited him with righteousness, which means he extended to him credit that he did not possess in order that Abraham may be right in this life and that when he passes from this world, he will receive the full credit and that he will be made right with God. Now, here's the problem, though. God says there's only one way you can be right with me in the Bible, which is that I have to, by my grace, I have to extend credit to you. I have to credit your account with righteousness. You have to be redeemed and reconciled by me, by my doing it. But you know what the lie is in our world? Because so many people are like, dude, don't believe that stuff. I'm going to bring my own offering to God. When I get up there in heaven or whatever, I'm going to tell God what it's about. I'm going to be like, hey, God, I did this. Look at my life. Oh, you get out of my way, God. It's all about me right now. That's what it's going to be. I meet people all the time, unfortunately, who are like that. People think that they can bring an offering of their lives to God and that God will weigh it and it'll be okay. People think they can bring an offering of money. People think they can bring an offering of fame. People think they can bring an offering of fortune. People think they can bring an offering of success. People think they can bring an offering that they created by their own hands as if it's some kind of special gift because I made it myself. Doesn't matter what it is, God does not accept that kind of offering. The Bible's very clear. The only offering God accepts is the offering that God himself picked out for us because it is the only perfect offering. We must trust God to pick the right sacrifice for us. Isaac was not the right sacrifice. The, that, the Bible, God had Isaac do that, go through that, so that we would see how barbaric it is that people executed our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's only son was executed on our behalf. But we must trust God to pick the right sacrifice for us. We cannot go up to God and demand that we want eternal life. We cannot demand abundance. We cannot demand a blessing. But God, because he loves us, is willing to give it. But he gives it because we accept the sacrifice that he has for us. We can build an altar of buildings and money and success and say, Oh God, here is my offering to you, but it will not do any good. Because the only offering God accepts is a free one that he himself gave to you and I. The question becomes, will we take it or will we not? Oh, and you can't do the buffet. We talked about this last week, right? I mean, some of us are like, okay, fresh choice. Here we go. So uh, I want a little bit of Dr. Phil, a little bit of Dr. Oz, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Jesus. I'll get a lot of offerings and it'll be great. But it doesn't work like that because it is a complete deal. When you commit to following Jesus, you're saying, I do to him. You're just like you're before the altar, just like on your wedding day, just your wedding day with God. You're committing your life to him. That's why the Bible uses marriage as a metaphor. Because you're committing your life to Jesus, and you're saying, I do above all else. That nothing else is going to stand the way. And then when God speaks in my life, even if it seems crazy, even if it seems weird, and for most middle-class Americans, it's never weird or never crazy. Let's just be honest because of our lack of faith. 
But when God calls that we will hear, we will listen, and we will respond because God is calling us to do that. Because we have real faith. You know what? I always I meet some people who are like, dude, when I get older, that's when I'm going to have faith in God. But you know what? God's call in a person's life does what over time? Gets smaller and smaller and smaller and quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And quieter. Because you can't go 60 years and reject God and then be as open to Him as when you were a child. It doesn't happen that way. You know, I told first service, and this is true. I, I can't, it's anecdotal evidence, but when I'm on someone's deathbed who is a believer, more often than not, they are happy about their lives, and they don't really care about their life, actually, because they, they want to tell their loved ones they love them, and they're looking forward to being home with God. But when I'm on the deathbed of someone who is not a believer in Jesus, the most common thing they talk about besides their family is their regrets of the things they could not do in life. Hey, have you guys seen that movie, The Bucket List, with uh, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman? Um, you know, it's a good movie, but there's a lie in that movie. You know what the lie in that movie is? Like, if you're going to die and you've got like eight weeks to live, that's what the point of the movie is, uh, write up a list of all the things you want to do and do it. Go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. But you know what the lie in that movie is? The lie is that there is nothing after death. Although Morgan Freeman challenges that idea a little bit, doesn't he, in the movie? But the movie's still based around Jack Nicholson, who believes there's nothing, nothing after death, that my life is only the summation of the things that I have and the things that I've done. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it is a sad existence if your life is the summation of the physical things you possess and the events that you've done in your life, the couple of things you've done. Because nothing like that is an offering that will be worthwhile to God. And by the way, when you obey God and when you listen to Him, He's going to call you to do things that are way beyond the bucket list. I mean, first service, I meant to say Mount Everest, I said Kilimanjaro. And I was thinking, you know, I've been to Kilimanjaro. I've been up the side of Kilimanjaro, not all the way, but part of the way up, planting a church. I never thought I would do that. You ask people in the church who, who have been believers for a long time, who have Abrahamic-like adventures, because God called Abraham to get out of his current situation and go and be the father of a great nation. didn't seem possible, but Abraham did it. You know, God calls people from our church around the world, Nicaragua, Philippines, does missionary work, does different things. I mean, God does things in people's lives when we turn our lives over to God, when we respond. And so the question comes in our lives is whether we're willing to allow God to do that. See, God has already selected a lamb for us. Again, you know, the Bible tells us, as we know here, let me just read it. Great, great sentence there. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord said to him, Don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel said, Do not hurt him anyway, for I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, even your only son, because God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering. And so God has provided a sheep for us, a lamb for us, a way for us to be right with God and right with people if we're willing to do that. By the way, just as an interesting note, um, John the Baptist happened to say this as Jesus was starting his public ministry. What did John say? He said, the Gospel of John records, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by the way, um, Jesus is willing to be the sacrifice for you to set you right with God, 
to set you right with people, to give you a love for God, love for people, abundant life here on earth, eternal life when you pass from this world. But it all requires you to be willing to accept Jesus' sacrifice, and that and that alone. You could try to put other things on the altar, but nothing will work other than the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sin of the world. And by the way, your sin and my sin as well. So the choice you have to make this morning is whether or not you're willing to commit to God, whether or not you're willing to have faith, whether or not you're willing to bring your own sacrifice to God, which, by the way, I do not recommend, or whether you're willing to accept the free sacrifice which God has in plan for you, in store for you. It's your decision. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and we pray that we would be able to accept the sacrifice that you have for us. Father, maybe someone's here today and they've been playing church, they've been playing faith, they've been marking it on their senses they're a Christian, but they're not really. They've never really said, I do. They've never really accepted the sacrifice that you have for them. If they're here this morning, they can make an easy decision. They can say, God, I love you. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I am broken. I know that I struggle. And that, God, I want to have Jesus to be the sacrifice on my behalf. I want, I want you to extend the credit to me. Lord, I can't do it myself, but you can do it through my life. Father, I commit my life to Jesus as my Savior who rescued me from my problems, as my Redeemer who made me right, made me valuable again. Father, we pray this. And Lord, for those of us who are committed to you, Father, we pray that every day of our lives would be based upon our willingness to sacrifice and serve because of what your Son has done. Lord, we love you, we commit our lives to you, and we pray for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.